stupid Geneva can like you can't do human experimentation at all and it's just a drag right <laughs> Good morning this morning. <laughs> Welcome to the Refactored Podcast, uh, the show where we try and help ourselves and you suck a little less each day and mix up the intro from time to time. My name is Frank Cole. And good morning this morning. My name is Chris Tonkinson. <laughs> and this is episode 44, recorded on October 19th, 2021. It's nice to be back on the regular schedule. Yeah, and it's 51 minutes till the top of the hour on this morning zoo show. <laughs> I don't have, I, I need, I, I mean, if we're going to do that, I need some lasers or something to play in the background, you know, it's about as close as I can get right there <laughs> off the top of my head. No, you need, you need about 19 more of those. Right. And you they need play to them all in, all and there needs to be like a swoosh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, wait a minute. There you go. There's there a, we now that's a that's a morning zoo. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um so we we teased some stuff last week. Yeah, you owe me did. you owe me explanations. Okay, so you okay, so your tease is not ready yet. You're still working on it. No. Right? Okay. No. Next week probably. All right. Yeah. So my my tease was why healthcare apps almost universally suck. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, we can, and, and, you know, we can sort of break this down. So why did I even have this? This was on my, my talking points because my healthcare apps for my work right now suck. <laughs> they're, they're really yeah. bad. And I know you, and I know you, you may consult with healthcare from time to time, but I, I live there permanently. Right. Uh, so I'm very, I'm very, so you're even right. So you're, so you're saying your too. healthcare apps, like as a, as a member of a plan, mm-hmm. the apps that you use to enter now, uh, uh, from an insurance perspective or from a like clinical, like you're interacting with your provider this is, or this you're is my healthcare insurance. This is healthcare from the insurance. This is the benefits management and all that. Through okay. The employer. Okay. Gotcha. It's through the employer. Gotcha. So this isn't a knock on my employer, just in case anyone's happened to be listening. It's just the nature of this beast. Oh, when I, when I write up the show notes, it's going to sound like that. <laughs> <laughs> So the, so these apps, if anyone, if you've ever used one, you've probably seen it. Things, long load times, crappy UI. Uh, I'm logged in and then all of a sudden uh, I'm logged. Uh, 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 ADP. Uh, 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 <laughs> their mobile app is trash. Uh-huh. Right. And, and, you know, and so you get bad experience, bad, just, just bad all, all around. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm it's experiencing well all over the place. I'm experiencing some new stuff that I think I've never seen before right now. Uh, trying to find the right URL to log in to different parts of the oh, app. And yes, I have, I have it yes. bookmarked. I have it bookmarked. This URL has nothing to do with anything on the surface of it. It's got a subdomain with dashes in it. Like it is, it is ugly. In <laughs> fact, in fact, I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll rip on ADP some more. Theirs is exactly, I don't know what you're using, but I will go on record. ADP, their mobile app is garbage. You talked about load time. You talked about non-intuitive interface and just mm-hmm. a poor design from like a like an IA and UX perspective. 
mm-hmm. then the web app, yes, finding the right login is a business. And if I lose that bookmark, it takes me 10 minutes to get back to where I'm supposed to be because I, it's it's like they're intentionally hiding it from you. It's it's abysmal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's, 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 it's atrocious. Uh, we're using, uh, I've used Trinet in the past. Trinet wasn't bad, but it suffered from the same problem too. And now we're using a company called uh, Sequoia. Um, but oh, Trinet went out the window, huh? It, well, I mean, when we got acquired, they they moved from from one oh, provider gotcha. to the to the. I mean, they they just gotcha. you know they shifted us to what they were using mm-hmm. in house. So you know, whatever. Um, I'd be fine with it if if the application were actually you know halfway decent. Um, but I mean, it just does weird stuff, and so um, turn this something off there. My the recording was starting to pick up notifications from background <laughs> background mm-hmm. apps to turn that off. Um, it's just it's just a bad experience, and uh, it's pretty consistent across the board. Okay, so so why is this? Are are all healthcare app people universally bad at their job? Well, no. I think if you go with you know, you could look at any piece of software anywhere and you're going to have good developers and bad developers just like anything else. I also don't think it's outsourcing versus insourcing because, again, mm-hmm. same deal. You can get good stuff overseas. Uh, you have to approach it a little bit differently and you have to really you know monitor progress, but you can get good software, you know, using uh, outsourced teams even. No, that's not the problem. The problem is endemic to healthcare because of the nature of how healthcare works is then reflected inside the software. Namely, that you have multiple layers inside of healthcare, and those layers then get reflected inside the application. Okay, so what what do I mean by that? So you have the, as an employee, your first touch point is whomever, through whomever you are getting your healthcare. That healthcare is usually attached to some kind of HR services firm. In my case, Sequoia. Benefits administration component. And administrate, right. In my yeah. case, Sequoia, previously Trinet. For you, it's it's ADP. And then ADP or Sequoia, I mean, they're not in the business of building healthcare apps. They then partner with outside vendors who provide that stuff. But the But their customers are not buying those vendors. They're buying them. And so you have this white labeling that happens. And then you have... The healthcare providers who are healthcare providers, they're not app developers. And so they source out pieces of the mobile app that tie to their data. And so now you've got a team that is twice removed on one end, talking to another development team removed on the other end to try and get their stuff talking together. And you've got white label on top of it. So you've got this layer of obfuscation effectively branding obfuscation i'll call it to get to make it look like it's this all one thing when in fact it's not so in the case of sequoia for example sequoia is just a layer on top of prism hr prism hr is one of these services very much like trinet you can contract direct- i was just going to ask is that the same is that the same situation as trinet you can con- you HR can contract directly with prism hr it's my understanding that you you could go direct to Prism HR and you wouldn't need that white label, mm-hmm. but instead you've got this label on top of it. Sequoia has its own healthcare deals, which now have to be reflected inside of the Prism HR system. And so I have to be hooked into it. And 
when you go into these systems, they they do effectively redirects to authorize you to these various components. Mm-hmm. There is a there's an FSA, for example. Well, the FSA again right. is its own thing. So you log in to get redirected over to the FSA, which is its own standalone thing, which, but still has to know which and is talk its own thing. It. Which is its own thing, likely a third party on another, top of the underlying bank. On, on top of the underlying bank <laughs> yeah. or healthcare provider. And, and that's another thing because FSAs, you know, that's a, it's a, it's a financial element, but it's tied to healthcare. And so you, I mean, you can have, there are different interested parties in running the backs of those things. Banks, you know, is, is a key, com, key component of well, that. And remember that phrase, interested, remember that phrase, interested parties, because I'm going to come back to that. In a okay. So. You, and and the FSA itself has the exact same problem. The bank isn't in the business of, you know, really building the app. They're in the interest of the money. The FSA component isn't really in the business of the bank, even though the money is the thing they're dealing with. They're dealing with the FSA layer of it. And then there's the app layer of it. And none of these things, you reach a certain size. Each one of these interests is its own shop. It's its own entity, even inside it. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of difference in how these can be constructed. These could be different departments inside a megacorp. They can be literally different companies. The fact is they're so distinct and removed from one another that when you try and start putting not just layers together, but layers of layers, I mean, this thing just spirals down, you know, this is inception level stuff. And you start actually trying to get these different things. Well, you're going to run into translation issues. You've got different teams doing different things in different ways. And getting it all working together, it's effectively stuck together with uh, duct tape and bubble gum. And so that's why you end up with these crappy uh, experiences because it's not, it's not actually cohesive. It's not coherent. It's I'm going to do this one piece and then I'm going to give you this information and then you're going to go over here to do this other thing and it's going to be completely different. Yeah, we'll make the color schemes look similar and I'll change the logo in the upper left corner. After that, you get what we give you. And it, it it's not as and it doesn't stop with just colors and logos too. You know, getting these things off and communicating with one another can sometimes really be um, a royal pain in the butt. In fact, in in some cases they don't connect at all. With my FSA, with the FSA I had in Trinet, it was a single unified login. With the FSA I have now, I, it's a it's a distinct login. So I actually have multiple logins to handle my benefits in different places for different pieces which is mm-hmm. not an ideal situation either, but that's just a case of two development teams essentially throwing up their hands and going, all right, I'll handle my users. You handle your users. Let's just send them where they need to go to start the registration process once they complete your registration process. And so this thing just turtles all the way down. And so the outcome yeah. is it's inevitable. It's, it, it is inevitable that this is going to happen. And I was... I was mulling my brain over the weekend to try and think of, because I wanted to try and draw an analogy. I couldn't think of an analogy where like this happened to the same extent. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? The only, I thought of one, I thought of one. I have a, an insurance plan for my, my, my home. I do one of those home and auto bundles. Okay. I've got a home and auto bundle on my insurance. The, Car insurance, it's through, the labeling on it is, I think we, I think we have Geico. Yeah, we've got Geico. And so labeling is Geico. And then on top of that, we've got the home insurance, which is through 
Uh, I forget who. I think I say travelers. Let's say travel. It doesn't matter who it is, but it's like mm-hmm. it's through Geico. But then you can see the plan inside my Geico account. As soon as I click the home side, though, zoop, off I go to the to the travelers site, and it's a jarring. Hey, you're going over here. This is different. Yeah. This is not the same logo. Yeah. This is all different layout and color and navigation, and you know, still kind of sucks. Works okay, but it's still not a cohesive, pleasant user experience. And that was, you know, and that's just one layer. That's one very, very simple layer. And healthcare has multitudes of them. Yeah. So, well, that's and it's, why it it's, sucks. It, and I think when you said it's when you said it's inevitable. It is right. The there's uh, the old wisdom is that your your software will replicate your or your your software structure r- replicates your organizational structure, right? So True. if your if yes. your company is structured in a certain way or thinks about the world in a certain way, you will see that in the software architecture. Like that will be so much of our consulting is to. actually in and in telling people that hey, your infrastructure your your systems are broken because your org chart is broken. Because you're, we do that yeah, a lot. Yeah. And and to your point though about interested parties, you're gonna have a lot of layers. You're gonna have a lot of tension, a lot of disconnects because the healthcare system has a lot of parties and a lot of disconnects. Right. I mean, I'm just I'm just napkin math here, but I counted eight different eight different parties with two different layers on each. So first on the on the actual healthcare, like clinical healthcare side, you've got the provider themselves the NP, the PA, the physician that you're seeing. Uh, and then there's their clinic, whether that's an outpatient uh, clinic or a hospital setting, whatever the, whatever the clinical environment itself is, there's a, they have a team and there's an organization there. And mm-hmm. then you've got the health system at large, right? Because we're in a period of massive health system uh, consolidation. There's probably some broader regional entity that owns that. Then you've got the actual insurance company, the payer, and abstracting all of the layers there uh, there's probably a benefits manager on top of it, which is kind of what you mentioned. You've got you, the human, and then you've got your employer who is interfacing, who's representing you in that discussion. And then with HSAs, FSAs, and so forth, you've got a bank somewhere and abstracting any layers that they'll have on top of themselves. And then across all of those eight different interested parties with their own needs, desires, goals, limitations, and motivations, you have regulation because you're dealing with healthcare and money so you have a double whammy uh in some cases of legislative regulatory uh compliance frameworks that you've got to deal with at the Mm -hmm. tactical level Mm -hmm. and then in front of each and every one except for you as a person you're the you're the loser in this because in front of each and every one of those other interested parties is a lawyer or seven and so it's no wonder that we have like a software experience that's so painful just to see what your FSA balance is, right? Just to get your HSA update statement. Um, because the software is mimicking the org structure, which is just fractured and hectic mm-hmm. and constantly changing. Um, I'm not, I'm not surprised at all. It's, it's, you're right. It's, I think it's, uh, it's endemic. Yeah, the process. It, it, it is. It is not an, until these until these systems and teams come up with a way to actually build their things in a uniform fashion and get their systems talking in a consistently uniform fashion, so that when you have an FSA, for example, 
their interface is the same for provider A and provider B and yeah. still delivering on the provider's expectations that it look like their branding and look like it belongs under their umbrella. You know, yeah. until you do that and not just look, but actually, you know, functionally under the hood function that way, you're just going to continue to run into this stuff. You've just got, you know, you have these little islands that you're connecting with bridges. That's what it is. Well, and what, what you're seeing though, is an attempt to solve that problem by the industry. You're seeing these, these front men, these, uh, that the, the white labeling initiative there's not just one service under the hood. See, that's why the white labeling is there because it's not just one thing under the hood. Mm -hmm. There's one thing under the hood that you care about. And then there's probably one or two other things that have to integrate with that. And then there are services on top of it to make everything functional for you because the company that's providing the underlying service that you care about obviously does not want to be, you know, it's, it's, they're not always interested in interfacing with you, the end user. Right. Mm -hmm. They want to they want to build and sell a platform, make their margin and not have to deal with operations. And so then a white labeler comes in, consumes that, adds the support and ops, um, along with maybe, again, other integrations that are required to make that useful for you and then sells that upstream. Well, if every if you got three different things that you care about by the time you get adding up all of those intermediates and third layers, it's, mm -hmm. it's painful. It's super painful. Right. Um, and each one of them has only their their limited vested interest. You at the top are the only one that has the um, the unified goal and vision of the whole thing. But if you're sourcing it out, you know, it's you're you're going to you're you're going to see yeah. the edges of that. You're going to see now the, the question you know, like from the fine lines. I would I would love uh, I would love an alternate universe where we could go and make this not true. Mm hmm. At like actually run a real world like all right let's let's get this sprawl under control and let's just have one thing and just compare the because because theoretically right each individual actor in the system is deciding i'm not going to do this piece of the puzzle because mm -hmm. that's not my right we talked a couple of weeks ago what is your core business and you should focus on that and get rid of the other stuff well if every individual actor in the in the chain said okay well this is what i'm doing but this other stuff I'm not doing, I'm going to farm that out because it's in my best interest. Maybe locally for that actor, their decision to outsource some aspect of the total solution is optimal. But I would be really interested to see if you could, if you could run a, you know, it's stupid Geneva can, like you can't do human experimentation at all. And it's just a drag, right? <laughs> but like, I would want, I would want to see okay, each individual actor in their own self-interest is optimizing for their business model, but then is it actually the case that the end result, the system that is a result of superimposing all of these isolated decisions actually more efficient than a system where, you know, health plan A just did it all themselves? Mm-hmm. And had to get good and had to get bogged down in the details of all of these different things. And, yeah, to had to try to, had give to you actually a build expertise that would, in all the moving because, pieces. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Because that would yield what we would like to think that that would yield you the best experience as a user because everything's there. It works natively. You see it all in one place. There's no, right. There's no integration challenge. But then can health plan A in this alternate reality? Can they actually get good enough at all of those different aspects 
to do all of that well. Right. And now you're running into violating the hedgehog principle. You know, you're not doing right, which is what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. I just want to know, like financially, like economically, is it is this actually system efficiency or is this individually efficient? But when you put all of those individually efficient Lego bricks together, the whole thing is actually a lot bigger than what it would be otherwise. So here. So what I think it's just an academic curiosity. No, 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 I, I get what you're saying. So I think that the. I think that the top level parent company has interest in this, but it is not a mega driving interest. So my my company, you know, they offer your company, any any company. Well, I wasn't I wasn't suggesting this is realistic in any regard. No, I, I know, just, I know, no, no, you know, I'm playing I'm, fantasy I, land. No, no, yeah. I know you're playing fantasy. That's that's fine. I'm I'm doing the same thing. I'm talking hypothetical. So let me I'll pull away from myself. Um, the um any any company offering benefits, they're doing benefits as a, as a lure, as an enticement to have healthcare, to, to offer healthcare as an enticement yeah. to bring in employees. Let's just yeah. stop there and just say that that's, you know, it's, that's why it's there. They don't have an actual vested interest in the healthcare itself, only that they have it so that they get the employees. Their interest is the work output so that they can do the thing that they want to do to make, to make money. You know, it's, it's a, they may give it importance and they may give it attention, but it is by definition secondary. The point is the product that they are offering to the market. That is the point of the company's existence. Offering the healthcare to the, to the employees is not their reason for existing. Okay. So it's already, well, it's not the reason for existing. And it, it's also, it's, it, it, there's another level there within the offering it to employees Right, because you said it's there to attract, and you're absolutely right. It is there to attract, not to attract and retain. And why do well, I know this? Well, I mean, this? you could make a case because, for retaining, I think, but go ahead. N- no, I don't think I don't think realistic. I mean, yeah, some people would say, oh, there's better insurance elsewhere, but that's a small piece of the overall equation. I have, in all of the years I have, in the thousands of resumes and interviews, I have had one per one human, one in all of that experience, ask me, can you share the details on the health insurance when we made an offer? Really? I've had a couple, actually. One person. Wow. Okay, so you've had a couple. I've had a couple. Are you saying like two, three? Are you saying like 20? <sighs> I guess Put it a depends on, it. on how, it, and now we're going to get nuanced. Yeah, it depends because on what I your said definition like, of details is. They wanted to know things. No, like, I'm saying like from a, from, a, from a talent acquisition standpoint, I say we offer health, medical, dental, PTO, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. And and I've had one person say, okay, with that medical, what's the plan and what are the costs? Mm-hmm. What is that plan and what are the costs? Really? Yeah, okay, so I actually get that question uh, fairly often. They want to know how much how much they have to pay versus how much the company is is paying for. Uh, they ask about the layout of the of the plan. Uh, you okay, know, but that's, that's fine. But, stuff but, like that. but well, what's, that, fairly, the details, what's fairly though? often? Yeah, oh. that's, I don't care though. What's What's the, like, what's, is that one out of two, one out of 10, one out of 20? Like what's, uh, one out of, one out of four, I'll say 25%. Yeah, maybe. Okay. 20, 25%. And that's in your current role, right? So what about, what about previous roles? Um, yeah, uh, hmm. I mean. That's going to be a, that's going to be a, a warp number because I, I mean, I have 
progressively done more and more hiring more and more recently. So, um, yeah. uh, it was less previously yeah, less. for sure. So, um, so, so somewhere taking our weighted average of just you and me somewhere sure. far South of 25% of people care what the plan is. They just want the box checked. Oh, you offer medical. Great. Some people, so, so like, so, so when you say like it's, it's talent acquisition for the company, it's not faulting them for saying it's not our core business. It's an economic decision. Nobody gives a rip. It's yep. a box to check, right? True. We check the box. We can do our, it doesn't impede our recruit. And that's, that I think may be more of it, right? It's that's going to be your route. Well, we, it's going to be your route. We yeah. attract because everybody, like any company over 25, 50 people is offering, offering health insurance, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. like, a, that's, that's a thing. And so, and so it's not that it's, it's not that there are companies saying, oh, well, we offer healthcare insurance and so a, a group health plan. And so that's a benefit. It is a benefit to working there. But what really happens in reality, because everybody does it, it's not to lose points on talent acquisition by checking the box. And as a company, it's not just that I don't care that that's not my core business to make sure the details are, are all ironed out. I literally don't care at all <laughs> because I'm not getting the lion's share of employees who seem to care about the details. Mm -hmm. Checking the box and I'm moving on. And the right. problem is you look at some of these third parties, you look at some of these white labelers and some of the backing services, and you can kind of tell when like the shop that built the app or the website was like checking the box. Like it's mm -hmm. really obvious. Yep. If, I mean, out of those, out of those eight parties, okay, you're one of them. So out of those seven other parties, if even one of them is just checking the box to get the damn thing written and out the door and shipped, the experience of the whole thing is going to be garbage. And you know that more than just one of seven of those parties is checking the box. For sure. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, it's not just, it's not just the number of layers and the number of islands, but it's the um, drive and incentive and energy that yeah. each one of those islands brings to the table. And that's why you end up with these rickety, bridges these yeah. these crappy rickety old bridges so um and software is a race to the bottom so <laughs> like well how so when you say race to the bottom in terms of cost mm -hmm. cost uh, quality i mean name your well i mean it's a it's a software is i mean at its most fundamental level it's a, it's a cost center you know it's some but i mean the app that you produce is producing an exp well no i'm say that now i'm actually arguing against myself um I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I mean, in this particular case, since the software reflects a cost center as opposed to a revenue center, then yeah, it is a race to the bottom. But if you're doing, you know, app development for like, I don't know, uh, Grubhub, you know, the app on Grubhub is a revenue center. And so I don't know if that would be a race to the bottom there. I would be, I'm willing to bet that Grubhub think, spends a fair bit of money if, on their stuff. So let's, let's pick on and Grubhub because they're, yeah, let's but let's let's pick on Grubhub. Sure, right? I don't they're, pick on they're, Grubhub. They're controversial for, for a bunch of reasons. Why not? Right. Let's sure. Yeah. So, so Grubhub. Uh, I don't see Grubhub as a particularly like warm and fuzzy organization. I see them True. as like hardcore capitalists. If they can save, if they can increase their margins, they're going to do it. So, if you think that Grubhub could save money by outsourcing more of their technology operations. I think they would do it, but they have a bar for the quality that they expect. Mm -hmm. um, and they know they're not going to get that quality otherwise. And if people, and if, if, 
if greedy, hungry people don't have a great experience with the app, they're going to stop using. They're just going to delete it outright. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, so they're, they're making a distinction. You, I'm, I'm supporting your point here. They're yeah, saying I mean, that, it's, a, it's a revenue generator quality. So right. Right. It's a revenue generator. Quality really matters. And mm-hmm. so we're going to pay top tier corn fed Americans in Silicon Valley to build this thing because that's where we're going to get the best quality in this time and market. Um, but, you know, and great if you're if you're a public or a B series company or something and, and the software is the thing you produce. But the vast majority of companies, they've become software companies, but that's it's a cost center. Mm-hmm. And so the vast majority of organizations, all these dark matter developers, like it's it's race to the bottom territory. They, they have they have not become software companies. They utilize like the, the underpinnings of their work is now based in software in a way that it was previously based in things like paper. But that's what, that's what yes, you're that's saying. That's what, that's what the, that's what it, I, there was an article, I forget, but that, that's what it means to say that all companies are software. That's, that's what it means. That's what you're, okay. Well, I just is wanted to make to sure that, we were talking about to say that it's like a substantial, a substantial amount of business empowerment is done on the back of technology, right? right? Not that that's their core business, but that it's facilitating their competitiveness in the marketplace. So right there in the, in the description of the thing, it facilitates their competitiveness that means there's cost pressure, like Im- immediately. Right. Well, of course there's, yes, there, of course there's cost pressure and they don't want to spend more than they have to, but they're willing to spend money to make money. And so, you know, it's, there, there is still a focus on the quality where there's, where there is a, where there is a, uh, not a cutoff point when you're dealing with a cost center. Okay. I want to get this cost as low as I as I possibly can without sacrificing whatever the thing mm-hmm. is that the cost center is supposed to right. support with right. a revenue generator that there is actually a line attached to nebulous quality and user experience and, and, and positive customer experience and, and ultimately success. So they're, they're willing to spend the money because they know that on the flip side, they're going to make a bunch of money on that money that they that they spent. Well, everybody's everybody's got the bar for minimum acceptable quality. If right. the software is your revenue generator, your bar is just much higher. I'm just suggesting merely okay. that the vast majority of software produced is not the revenue generator, and True. so the bar tends yeah. to get progressively lower. I guess that's a, a okay. better way to phrase what I was trying to say. Okay, no, no, I, I get it. Yeah. I wanted to make sure we, you know, well. So that's my that's terms. my. Cr- that's my patent pending cranky optimism that just all software's <laughs> a race to the bottom. It's all garbage. Yeah. It's it's all it's all burn it garbage. all with fire. Burn it all with fire. It sucks. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I, I hear you. I hear you. Um the other part of this conversation was uh around the uh because you had mentioned HIPAA uh and mm-hmm. uh and the security standards and things like that. And you know, do they have a a net effect on these things? And I would I'm actually ties pretty well here. Security in these regards is a cost center. You know, being making sure that you're HIPAA compliant is a is a cost center. It's not a revenue generator. And so you're just going to do what you have to do to check the box. And if each individual island is responsible for, you know, the data and their pieces of it and they just sort of do what they need to do, then it, it's it's a non-issue. The argument you could make about their about how it negatively affects healthcare apps, healthcare software is in the multiplicative nature of this, where I have an Island and that Island has to take care of HIPAA. 
it has to hire, you know, it hires a consultant to make sure they're HIPAA compliant. You have another island that's doing another piece of your, your healthcare app infrastructure. They have to make sure they're HIPAA compliant. They have to hire, say, the exact same consultant to come in and make sure that they're HIPAA compliant. And so the only one that's really making money hand over, you know, the, the consultant's making money hand over fist by just working with each of these individual islands and making sure that they're all in the green. Whereas if you had all of this, your, your ideal alternate universe that you mentioned, you know, the healthcare plan doing everything under the sun, soup to nuts, it would be just that it would, you would do that one time in one place with one organization. And that effort would be more efficient and less costly. And uh, I also think that you probably end up with, um, with less of these issues since everything is already naturally you know, under a single umbrella. So it's naturally going to fit together better, faster, cheaper. So, um, so no, I, I think that I don't think that that's a major contributing factor to the complexity and general crappiness. I think that it gets, um, I think that the problem gets exacerbated because of it, but I don't think it's actually a, a root cause. Well, no, I'm saying, I'm saying it's both. Like the, the structure HIPAA? reflects the org, like no, the structure yeah, yeah, reflects the that. org structure. And it, 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 if, if, it, if, it, <sighs> if every party is like 5% sucky, by the time you get done adding up all of the suck across uh-huh. all of the parties involved, yes. the thing sucks. Yeah. <laughs> <That's> a- <laughs> hey, do you remember that comment you made last week about how we're dumb and we talk past each other? I think you just yeah. did it there. Am I, I doing you just, it? You just did it? it. Yes, you, you definitely nah. did. No, because I totally That's agree. Right. I'm, I'm addressing specifically the HIPAA, the security compliance, the, 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 um, the standards enforcement and, and those kinds of things. That is not outside in. Oh, yeah, of course the stuff sucks. They got to deal with HIPAA and SOC 2 and all this other stuff. And no, no, that, that does not. It, I, honestly, actually, in a lot of cases, that stuff has the opposite effect because in order to actually meet the criteria for some of these standards, you have to do things in a not crap way. You have to actually no, put you just, rigor you can, in there. You, yeah. A mm. little bit. So rigor rigor doesn't mean quality, though. Right? You're talking about operational discipline that can be solved. You know, a lot of these frameworks, so like... Um, like HIPAA or uh, SOC is a little bit different, uh, PCI. Like it's not, it's it's less that everything is perfectly done. It's more that you documented what you did mm-hmm. and you can show progress against the material goals. So yeah. like you, so like you on some of these audit, for, I can't speak for any anyone in particular off the top of my head because they all kind of blend together after a while, but, but it, like it could be the case that, okay, well, I have a policy that says, um, my software, uh, let, let's make up an example, right? My software doesn't have any swear words in comments. The source code doesn't have any comment swear words whatsoever. That's a, that's a, that's a compliance audit. That's an audit framework compliance issue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it matters a lot less whether you actually have swear words in your comments. What matters most in these audits is that you have a process for attempting to prevent swear words from being written into comments in your software source code, that you have an appropriate oversight mechanism to identify and remediate swear words in comments once they are identified, and that you have a governance program that oversees all of the above. 
So you could have a hundred swear words in your source code comments and not get dinged on the audit as bad as you might think, but you have a program in place to manage that. And right. so a lot of it, like, so I, I don't know that I agree entirely that, oh, well, these things make you, I, I think that's kind of orthogonal. I think, I think an organization that's quality focused will find a way to navigate the regulatory frameworks in a quality way. And the ones that are just box checking and trying to get by, they're going to get by. They're still gonna, it's not really going to impact. Right. But there is still, it still presents, and that's absolutely true. It still presents a minimum bar that they have to clear. Now they're going to try and make, you know, there's a difference between, you know, the, the, the company that has the quality of an Olympics uh, of an Olympic hurdler hurdler hurdlist. I don't know which it is. Hurt, hurdler hurdlizer hurdlizer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, we'll go with hurdlizer. Sure, hurdlizer. So uh, the company that approaches their quality clearing bars of an Olympic hurdlizer versus the company that's you know clearing the bars with the uh, with with all the grace and efficiency of a I don't know. 90 year old woman <laughs> or a three-year-old and go either way with it. Right. You know, yeah. one of them's, you know, one of them is going to clear it with ease and the, and the bar they may set is actually higher than the standard. The other one is probably going to need a box to step over it and some spotters. And, you know, they're only going to do what hand. they absolutely have to do by hand <laughs> yeah. and get it done yeah. and move on to the next thing. But they, my, they both are getting up and over the bar. And so there is a minimum level now some of these regulations are just they don't do anything a lot of yeah it's but your but your argument is that these regulatory frameworks are meant primarily with respect to data privacy and security that doesn't have a necessary and obvious impact on user experience if that's how we're defining quality well that and but that's exactly yes and that is that that is my that is my 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 point like they can so, so we're talking about quality as experienced by the end user, and you're right. saying that regulatory requirements, you know, certification frameworks impact that? I'm not sure they, getting from A to B there. They can. Okay, so maybe. Okay, so I'll have to. Okay, so are we check. or we have we shifted? Have we shifted? And we're just saying quality as like a general kind of concept. I, I, I think I think conceptually because there I'm, I think you've got a leg to stand. Yeah, on. yeah. They, I mean, maybe I I think conceptually I think in my in my head I started shifting. I I did the okay uh, okay I did the elite. yeah. But and I don't want to do that. I want to keep things on topic. But that would be a good conversation. You know how if and how these these standards actually improve forget forget quality even a, a nebula do they improve anything do they actually do what they're what they set out to do and i would i mean off the top of my mm -hmm. head i'll say a little sometimes. bit a little bit sometimes is what i was gonna say yeah sometimes a, a little yeah. bit sometimes in specific situations <laughs> In a full moon. Well, no, I think there's this. It's it's material. It is. I would say games are not played in a dome. <laughs> <laughs> At the quarter moon with a bloody chicken. No, I think like it, there are there are material things that that are improved that mm -hmm. may otherwise get skipped by a team that doesn't care about the quality. So a great example is like default passwords and default ports. Okay. Right. A lot of these frameworks will require that any default accounts are either disabled and or the password is changed to something reasonably complex mm -hmm. and that you don't have unnecessary 
default ports open on the WAN side of the internet. So for example, right. I don't have username, admin, password, password uh, on a on a box that is exposing RDP port to the whatever port RDP is. Uh, but I know, you know, uh, Telnet's 22, right? So, right. Or, or SSH is 20, I think. SSH, Telnet's 23. Yeah. Um, you know, okay, I, that's that host doesn't need SSH exposed to the WAN. It doesn't need SSH at all. So I'm going to turn that service off, close the port, and then the root account password is not root, right? A company that didn't know to do that. Now, why you're in an, in an event where you're processing PII or payment data and you didn't already know that is like a whole different thing, but you know they're out there. That happens. Um, you know, the regulatory framework can force you to validate that fact across all of the machines in your network rather than the ones that your admin remembered to audit that day. So mm-hmm. so there there is there are things that they materially help. I think technology by default has caught up with a lot of that stuff already. Um, like things are like the vendors. And I mean, from from the OS level and even up a couple of stacks, the vendors are starting to ship secure by default configurations mm-hmm. uh, that help with a lot of that. So that's that's been good. And maybe it's because their customers were starting to demand that they didn't want to do all this stuff manually. I mean, that could be part of it. So it could be an end around where the where the 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 frameworks and the certifications kind of goosed the um, goose the underlying software vendors mm-hmm. to up their game in response to the customer's pain. Uh, that I think that there might be an argument there to be made. There's a it's there's there's also there's there's an interesting interplay there with um, with defaults because um, you know having utilized and built uh, a whole bunch of different tools and applications and, and things like that over the years, you and I have both learned less customization is good. The less I have to touch the stock definitions to meet my ends, the better. And one of the things that was always error, an error prone, break it, fix it, break it, fix it, cyclical process was the act of hardening. Mm-hmm. It was, okay, I've done, I've, I've got things running. I know what I'm going to do. Now I got to Put it in production. And the act mm-hmm. of putting it into production was always this, okay, well, it was working in development. I mean, how many times have you said or thought it works fine in the development environment? Works Why on is it my- broken in production? And so- It works you, on my machine. It works on my machine. <laughs> exactly. So the less of that you have to do where the where the stuff out the box is actually made to be in production, which means- your starting position is already going to be that production side. And so any problems you have out of the box are just that out of the box. That's going to be easily identified and documented and corrected issues. And so those things that you deal with that become snowflake style edge case, um, Sherlock Holmes level of sleuthing to solve as you're moving things or, you know, pushing things out into a production setting. They, they're, they're, they're solved. They're easy and done up front. And yeah. that's not, I mean, I think the reason I'm saying all this is I think that's part of the reason why software developers got on board with the notion of having ha- things hardened outside the box, not just because the standards were calling for it. Well, wait yes. a minute. You think the software developers had anything to say about this? No, I do actually. Yeah. <laughs> I, but, but it, I not, don't think so. Not the way you're thinking, not the way you're thinking. 
the software development firms did because what happens when this stuff, so going to production, and let's assume it's not an open source thing. Let's assume it's, you know, packaged box software. When it doesn't work, what happens? You try and figure it out. If you can't figure out, what do you do? You call support. You call the vendor. You call the vendor. You utilize your support contract. So it's absolutely in the vendor's best interest to minimize the number of those calls. It becomes cheaper for them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So one of the ways that you make that cheaper and one of the ways you make those calls go away to make your support costs go down is you actually shift shift left on all the stuff that's happening in production. You just make it happen earlier in development. And so now you actually have a business case on the vendor's part to say, no, make it out of the box. Act like it's going to be in production. The engineers, I think some of them will probably go. Yeah, that sounds great. Not for the same reason. They're going to say, yeah, this is great because now we're, we're, we're mimicking our development and our production. And I don't have to worry about Chad over there talking about how, oh, it works on my machine. You know, for the 18th million times. You know, so yeah. nerds will nerd out about it. But there's actually a real business uh, implication behind that, I, I think. Well, right. But that's, that's, not, that's just two different sides of the same coin. How, what do right, you that's mean? the same. That's the same problem. Did I just talk past you? Did I just do what I what I told you you were doing? No, 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 no. You, you said idiot? two different. No, no, no. You said two different things, and they're just you made at first. You made them sound like they were opposing things when really they're just two sides of the same story. Well, well, that's we're, whole, okay, yeah. now I'm I'm lost. Well, like what, what like there being things? a valid business, like there being a valid business reason for the vendor to secure mm-hmm. things by default. So that they don't get support teams from QA and management when we ship something into production that no longer works, mm-hmm. and then and then your uh, your your IT operators breathing easily because they don't have to deal with the idiot developers who mm-hmm. don't understand why it's not working over there and it is working over here. Like that's the same, it's the same dynamic, just as same, seen by two different two different sides. Well, yeah, right. Yeah. So there's the insider and then the and then the vendor. Yeah. There's the business, um, right? It's a business benefit to both the well, the client but I guess who's that's utilizing the vendor and uh, utilizing the software and the software vendor themselves. There's benefit to both. Yeah, for, but I, for that being the case, right? But I get, I get, mm, I don't know. I don't want to get too cranky on it, but like I have a problem saying that like a technology benefit that that is a business benefit. Like yeah, we're in business benefit. to stay in business, and yeah. so anything that helps make our team more efficient. That is the business case, right? And it, sure. yeah, you have you may have some developer that's complaining it works on my machine. Um, cultivating a group of people like that is a business problem in of itself. Like it's right. all. I, I guess. I guess. I guess I'm being cranky on on artificially saying that one is a technical problem as opposed to being a business problem when really. It's just a business problem, and well, then the mean, vendor is solving it for you, which is which is what you're paying. You might you to be do. going a little high in the ivory tower here, because at certain points, don't all problems become business problems? I mean, that's you're 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 getting kind of. Um, I feel like you're getting philosophical here um, when you're talking. Well, but when you're talking about a a software vendor shipping mm-hmm. you something, right, and then next year they ship you a version of it that fixes your problems. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Then, then the technical problem is really not that far from the actual business problem. Like they are one and the same. I'm not. I'm not trying to make the overall case that well, uh, you know, because I, I mean, we could just say heat death of the universe and then end the podcast. Like, that's not super interesting <laughs> discussion. I'm saying in this particular scenario we've contrived, um, the technical problem is sufficiently close so as to be the same as the business problem. 
That's all. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then I can just see, and on top of that, I can just see nerds rejoicing to do that kind of stuff because nerds like doing that kind of stuff. You know, you, you, you know, the way that you, you set up the systems being uh, consistent across the board, any, any engineer worth their salt knows that, you know, you actually don't want to do a whole lot of configuration. You actually want to stick with the baseline as much as you can and only make exceptions where necessary because reinventing the wheel and creating snowflakes is dumb. Is, is dumb. Yeah. It's well, there's also that. It's where all your work is. And I, it's all your work. You've, you've seen it as well as I have, like you, in, in, inherent to the, the whole story that we've, the whole situation we've contrived here is the error. Mm-hmm. You want to do things left to right. Like if I, if, and you and I have done this, you walk into a company day one, you see that their source control are zip files on a shared drive. Developers are compiling things locally and FTPing them to the production box, right? This is not good process, right? We have to automate. And where do we start? Left to right is generally the right way to move. Uh, you start with source control and then you do continuous integration and then you do continuous deployment. And that, right, the way that you solve building environments in a team setting is actually right to left. And for the reasons like that would resolve the whole issue that we've contrived in this situation, right? I should build my production environment first. Mm-hmm. Put stuff in it, make sure it works, mm-hmm. and then copy production into you know whatever the 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 farther left environments need to be. If you just have prod and dev, or if you have production, demo, UAT, staging, QA, develop, you know, however many levels of of, of environmental mm-hmm. promotion you have, you actually build the environments right to left mm-hmm. because then you don't have the oh, but production has something that development doesn't. Like that never comes up. Builds if you're if you're taking the strategy again if you're taking the strategy of twenty oh you know two thousand nine I guess and you're building environments manually from clones of other environments mm-hmm. obviously the real way to go is well we talked about cattle and die uh, many months ago but yeah cattle you know, versus I pets. would say start with a baseline if you're if you're deploying actual VMs start with a baseline OS just stock OS and then put config management on top of it let that do mm-hmm. all your work because you don't care anymore but um in in the event where you're actually building environments manually right to left is the way to do that for exactly the reasons you've illustrated like yeah. otherwise well, you're even wind the, up with stuff yeah but even in the virtualized setup you still want to do that I would still build my container I would still design and and stand up and fabricate that container as if it's going into production, I want it to be as production-like from the outset as I possibly can, and then make where abs, you know, make dev-specific concessions on the configuration and the structure only where absolutely necessary to facilitate development. I think that that mindset doesn't change whether you're doing VMs, bare metal containers, whatever. I think that you. I'm actually, I'm, I'm wholeheartedly agreeing yeah, with yeah, you and I'm doubling not, yeah. down. I'm actually going even further because I think you're actually onto something really, really good there. You know, development, you want to, you know, you know shift left on, on development means that, you know, you, you are moving um, as much of the entire um, processes. Oh, but for a, con- for a container, I mean, if you're, if you're following the 12 factor app methodology for a container, it, that doesn't 
really like they're all the same and that's kind of the point but that's I kind do of actually right. have a question here yeah so have you have you uh have you managed uh automation pipelines for applications using compiled languages recently like, like a, hands a on a java hands on with anything something? like that uh i have because one of the problems we've had has. i haven't directly like, like real has. Like real time, I'll use you as my tech support. I've run into a struggle lately, and I'm not, I can't exactly decide what the best prescription is. We have, it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a product, it's a compiled uh, language system. And we, you know, we're espousing that the right way to do things is to commit your code, produce an artifact. If the artifact is viable, put it in your leftmost environment and test it. And then if it passes the tests, you promote it to the next environment to the right. And then mm -hmm. you do whatever testing you need to do there on and on until production, right? You right. create one immutable binary artifact and then you promote it up through the environments ending with production, right? That's kind of the general. Um, and that's that's the way you do it for, you know, let's just say containers. You have a Rails app in a container. That's the way you would do it, right? It just makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um because in a dynamic language, you control things like um, certain optimizations and log verbosity all through. Well, log is a, actually a bad example. Um, specifically, the problem is what if your binary output either needs to contain debug symbols or not? So like I compile, let's say I have a, a C or a C sharp or Java application. Mm hmm. And I want it to include debug symbols for the lower environment so that when something goes wrong, I can, you know, I can inspect it. But I don't want those debug symbols to ship to production. Do I, what, I don't know if you've, if you've dealt with this or anybody on your team, like how, what's the best way to manage that process? Because what I want is one, I want to be able to say that what's running in production now is the same literal binary that was running in development mm -hmm. yep. and QA, but it can't have the, it, that can't be true. So do I post pro, I think there are tools in most of the modern languages like post process and strip that stuff, but it seems super dangerous or I could run parallel builds or I could say, look, I'm going to run a separate pipeline and the only difference is supposed to be whether debug symbols or optimization flags are included or not included. And I'm going to just run that from the same git commit and and trust that the two are like, I think, you, I don't know, I, this is one that we've we've, right, we've so been debating a couple, for a little yeah, while no, now. This is a, and you're 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 on to something that I think the organization, the uh, industry writ large is is really focused on. Um, so first and foremost, with the. You know, if you're doing things with your dev builds, you know, particularly if it's if it's pre-compiled um, stuff, uh, compiled languages, you want to push those dev-specific uh, compilation flagging builds as far to the left as possible, so that they're you know the engineer, in theory, only ever does those builds locally, but never actually pushes them into anything even remotely close to the prod environment like you wouldn't if you can keep them from even entering a staging at, at all you know like you just do it locally to figure things out and when you're done and you're ready to actually you know push a thing up you turn all that crap off and then that build becomes the build you know so 
I mean, I think shifting left on that is is probably the you know one of the better ways to go. Um, however, what you're actually, I, I think one of the things you're you're actually talking about is um, signing. You're more interested, I think, in signing builds. And no, well, I mean, it, you you want to you want to know that. Just tell me if I'm wrong. You want to know that the build that I had in development is the build that made it out to production. That's your primary concern. Put aside, you know, turning the flags on and off. Let's assume you can do that. You're trying to make sure that. No, the no, thing- they're not. They're not runtime. They're not runtime flags. They're compile time flags. Okay. Right. right. So with, with GCC, just, just as, a, as an example, GCC, there's mm-hmm. uh, tech uh, big O three is I think at, at least like, 15 years ago was the highest level of of optimization you can employ. I wouldn't, you know, I I would not uh and then it was what flag D or some whatever it was to include mm-hmm. the debug symbols in like right. a C++. Let's say let's say your your artifact for production is like a C++ like .exe or sure. something. Okay. Um in production, I want the optimization flag on and I want the debug flags off. Like I want to compile the binary with those settings. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be the same binary that's running in development, but in development, uh, and what I mean by that, let's say test, right? Because development, I don't want to be uh, ambiguous here. Test environment, so a shared team testing environment where the QA people do their work. Mm-hmm. I want the debug flags on. I don't necessarily care that the optimization flags are on, but I w- I need the debug symbols included in the binary. Mm-hmm. So, is is the better strategy to? develop a dev and a prod binary off of every commit and then i send one to some environments and another to other environments or do i only produce a production binary ah. after all of the other tests have passed right um, I see it. and then how do you manage the like it just it seems wrong that in our deployment system we have like a dot dev and a dot prod of everything. Right. You know, like and right. that that feels ugly, but that like it feels ugly. Like if if I'm if I'm shipping a node app, I don't have this problem, right? Because it's a dynamic line. It's it's, right. it's not a compiled uh, right. binary. The, it's, the code it's the source. Right. So yeah. It, I mean the code just continues its merry on down its merry way, and then you're turning you know, everything is flags. Everything is just right. flags. And there are flags. There are still flags you may you may enable in production at runtime, but it's a compilation thing. And and the idea of having, you know, like this ideal with a container, like let's say I build a Rails app, the container itself includes the code. It is one immutable binary artifact that I will actually move from my workstation up to production if it passes mm-hmm. all the all the bars. The same is not always possible. Mm-hmm. So with a binary, and I, I don't, I didn't know if you, if you would run into. No, no, no. I, I know. Yes, yes. So I, I know exactly what you're talking about, and, and, um, yeah. Forgive me, my head went in another direction, which is actually a really interesting, uh, topic of conversation. Um, if you do say so yourself. If I do say so myself. Um, well, we, we talked about it a little bit before with the, um, in one of our early episodes with the, um, the hack on, um, um, crap, the, the, the big government hack. Uh, that happened in the you uh, talked about chain. you talked about solar winds solar winds uh, yeah I'm but I'm, I mean signing like, that's fine like I don't care about signing t- like I can do a shop right, two fifty six if I really want to that's not no 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 yeah. I I got that I got that but my head sort yeah. of went there because you know one of the things that we're you know we as an industry are really thinking about is okay well how do you how can I know for sure 
that the system that the the binary that actually made its way out to production is the actual one and that I'm not dealing with a man in the middle attack like what happened with solar winds and a bunch of other ones. Um, anyway, that's, a, that's a sidebar and a, a discussion for another day. Yeah. Not- and, and you're, you're right though, not to give the but, but signature and you're done. Like it's not, that's not a hard problem to solve theoretically. Yeah. yeah. Practically there are a bunch of different ways you can go about it, but there's, yeah, there's more nuance to it than that. But yes, I see your point. So, if so, the f- obvious answer for I'm going to start with the is your computer plugged in? Okay, start with the obvious stuff first. If you can get away with not using those flags, don't use those flags. Because if you if you can have a consistent compile and you don't have a a concrete business need for that to happen, then I would see I would work hard to eliminate that entirely. That's step one. Let's assume that well, you we assume you do because QA team is going to find errors and stacks and they want to be able to go in and attach to the process and, and debug exactly what the right. So we're assuming right. that that is a requirement. Yeah. Right, right. Okay. So then and I, and I would agree with you, by the way, like that's OK. Local dev, if I'm going to run the service on my laptop mm-hmm. and I want to put all the weird flags, I all want the for weird stuff, I, nobody nobody should be able to tell me what I can or can't do on my local laptop when I build with flags. But you're right. If, if I can limit it there and say, okay, from the time it hits the test server, it's actually the production binary. And that's what the CICD system, but then, then there's no issue. Cause you're right. It's the same all the way right. across the board. But locally on your laptop. I get it. Your GCC is reading like an article from the New Yorker. You've got like all sorts of crap in it. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Yes, very loquacious. Very, very loquacious. Highly loquacious. Lots of flags, lots of ticks. Anyway, um, eliminate it if you can. Assuming you can't, then the then the argument that you're the uh, the problem that you have is right now you're creating a dev and a prod, one with flags, one without. At the same time, mm-hmm. using the same pipeline. That's good. You're going to have consistency there. I would be religious utterly fanatical about making sure that I am using the exact same compile line, not just, okay, yes, I'm running the same thing the same time. No, 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 no. Like I have a variable. The variable contains the string of my compile command. And I am, when I build these, I am tacking on the dot D onto the end. And on the other one, I am removing the dot. Like I would want it to be as close to, you know, line by line parody as I possibly could. That would be my, my first, you know, step in paranoia. Um, the other, the other problem that you've got, I, 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 if I'm, if I'm reading this correctly is, okay, I've got this build, I'm creating two binaries. They are more than zero bytes large. And if the build never goes past test, which let's be honest, a lot of them won't, you have a bunch of junk. And that's part of there. That's part of the issue. Like, And if that's like, if the only answer is that's the way you do it, you just produce both binaries immediately. And then you know that and in our, I'm thinking of one product in particular that I have recent tactical experience with. I know that one out of a hundred builds will go to production. Mm -hmm. So I am doubling my storage cost for these artifacts. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, So you have two ways, you have two. You basically have two ways of approaching it then. You could not build, like you said, you could not build the dev, or excuse me, not build the prod at the same time you build the dev, introduce that in a later pipeline stage where testing says approved and then creates it. That's an option. Yeah. 
That comes with some security concerns. And now we're into the solar winds territory because man in the middle and things like that. But you kind of have that even anytime you have the pipeline, you got the man in the middle stuff. But anyway, you've got to, you would have to secure twice now. Your, your data storage goes down, but your attack vector territory increases. So that's option one. Option two is you can do a retroactive cleanup. So test team, option one is test team says this passes, go create prod. Option two, test team says this failed, go delete, delete the prod. Delete prod. Keep test because we want to keep that. And we can always go back and yeah. recreate prod if we want to later, but right. keep test, delete prod. And so you have a post action that you have to attach to. Neither one is super clean. You're adding additional steps. It's adding thereby more complexity. And so, you know, you're not, you know, it's, it, it, if I, yeah. if I, if it's me, you know, in this, in this hypothetical that we're talking about here, cause I'm sure that there are other complexities that you have to consider here, the Nate, how, how long it takes to compile, um, and, uh, you know, the nature of the testing process, the nature of your of your prod deployment process, you know, how your tooling is set up. Is there a handoff of the tooling between test and prod? You know, does one team have one pipeline and another team the other pipeline? That would introduce all sorts. I mean, there's all kinds of things well, the idea, that I would yeah, want to look idea, at. Yeah, the idea, I mean, in, in short, we we have a prod, you know, if you if you merge code into the main branch, then it produces an artifact and then different teams have authorization to release a given artifact into their environment of control. Mm -hmm. Right. OK, yeah, I guess it's just it does. It does seem ugly that you've got. 200 artifacts for one production release, but that may yeah. I, you, you may have. I also worry uh, may about be right. There may just be irreducible overhead. I mean, well, that, I that worry about it. I do worry about in either in either direction that I would handle this. I do worry about the um, existence, the mere presence of multiple executables being in any way labeled as production, because yeah. that opens an opportunity for little Jimmy to come in and pop the wrong prod exe out into production. Yeah. Now. You can now don't get me wrong. You can put a lot of process and rules and rigor around this kind of stuff to prevent it. But again, it's it is area. This is this is attack vector area or mistake vector area that you have to consider and you have to account for. I'd rather not have to think about it. How do I not think about it? By making sure that prod uh, binary doesn't exist in the first place now or later. If it's not valid and it's not going to prod. It's gone. Poof. Um, oh, you know, maybe there is, maybe there is a, do a timeout between your two. There's a middle ground where, um, where your pipeline generates both artifacts, mm -hmm. sends the dev artifact to your deployment system and caches the production copy and then only publishes that into your deployment system once, you know, at least one level of testing has passed kind of a thing. And then have it naturally, you know, have an expiry policy uh, set on that. You could do that. And that's exactly where my head went as I was talking. Because we have we have a nice clean break, yeah. like like developers have access into source control. Uh, they have visibility into our pipeline system, but not direct control. And then operators have access into our deployment system. So 
the 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 risk from like little Jimmy sending the wrong thing to prod is in the deployment system itself. If the deployment system is never made aware that a production artifact exists, mm-hmm. it's not going to be an option. Um, and if, it, and if you set, if you basically put a if you basically put a put a bomb timer on those prods, hey, this either goes out to prod or it vanishes. Yeah, I, I, I mean that's a that's a nice clean way of handling it, and and that's actually, I mean nobody has to do anything. I love it when you don't have to, you know, make someone think. Um, it gets rid of something that you don't want to hold on to. Uh, so there's no, you know, there's no security or compliance concerns there. You can always yeah. reproduce it. I mean, worst case scenario, you could always go back and do it manually because you've got your build. Well, and that's and you could go back and look and at the, the compile line and just remove the 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 debug flags and rebuild yeah, I that one. From I haven't God. done it. I haven't done it in a in a more dynamic environment, but. Um, you know, you, earlier you kind of alluded to um, supply chain and well, it's not just as nuanced as signatures. No, but reproducible builds go a long way to solve that problem. Also kind of goes a long way to solve this as well. If I know I can have reproducible builds, mm-hmm. then that can solve a lot of pain also potentially. Right. Hmm. Anyway, interesting. food for thought. Still playing with that. Yeah. Well... If you know anything about reproducible builds or uh, deploying different static artifacts into different environments, we would love to hear from you. Feedback at refactor.work is how you'd get in touch with us. You can send us an email, record on your phone and send that. Send us that clip. We'll play it on the show. We'll make you sound like a dum-dum. <laughs> you can find more of my ramblings. <laughs> you can find more of my ramblings online at chris.tonkinson.com. You can find more of Frank at hotcoals.com. That's K-O-E-H-L-S. Uh, let's see, full notes, archives, back episodes, tags, book recommendations at refactored.org. This has been episode 44, recorded October 19th, 2021. Thanks, Frank. See you later, buddy. <laughs>